So I, I will now turn to our topic, and I'll start in the traditional way that we're trained to. Um, Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddhang damang sankhang namasami. Facing our biggest fears. One thing that I think is useful to note is that as human beings wake up, they go beyond fear. So what that tells me is that it's not essential. We don't have to carry it around. But of course, it's very much a normal, natural part, a natural part of human life because it's part of our, our evolution, right? It's, part, it's built into our nervous system so that the early human beings could avoid the things that would be dangerous, harmful, and this species could continue. And it's still useful sometimes when we, you know, feel fear in a dangerous situation and then our whole nervous system reacts. The hormones get released that pass the blood to the large muscles and away from the digestive process and, you know, dilate the pupils and dilate the, the lungs, the so we can breathe deeper, run faster, hit harder, jump higher. And that collection of hormones and mechanisms also shut down our ability to plan and our ability to evaluate, and it increases our emotional intensity. So that makes sense if you're running away from something or having to react quickly. But one of the things that's been more and more true as our modern life has evolved is that we tend to have many more times when we're reacting in that way than is actually helpful. And the other side of the equation in our nervous system, the, the parasympathetic system, nervous system, doesn't get as much airtime. So we lose our balance and the hormones that would help us relax, rest, be at ease, be at peace, allow us to plan and enjoy what's positive are sometimes not as, as prevalent. And that has long-term effects on our health. And it also, this equation or this collection of, of things that happen inside of us has a, a relationship to our practice and to our, the way our minds work. And the Buddha knew this 2,600 years ago. The suttas don't explain the 
you know, the endorphins and the oxytocin and the, all of that. But, but it, they do explain how to work with the mind so that we can bring it into a balance that helps us to see beyond the immediate crisis, that helps us to see when we're really not in crisis, that helps us to recognize a larger, deeper, more realistic reality than just, I want to get away from the pain and I want to have the good feelings. So how does that work? Well, first of all, most of us have probably gathered by now that it doesn't help to push our fears under the rug or into the closet because then they get bigger and they control us. And they come out in maybe funny ways. So fear is usually the underlying cause, we could say, or at least a big part of the equation when we're angry or when we're irritated or when we're just nervous, anxious, depressed, even feeling a lot of greed. There's usually fear underneath what the suttas call the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. There's a lot of fear mixed in there. So it's very beneficial to understand when that's operating and what we can do with it. The Buddha talked about, in the first noble truth, suffering, noticing when there's suffering and when there's not suffering and knowing that suffering. He called it the first noble truth, right? And that can often be misunderstood because it's not that suffering is noble. It's that the way we, we can approach it in a way that's noble. And what he said we would, would be useful to do with suffering and that's, and you know, the word in Pali is dukkha, so it's not just the excruciating suffering of life, but it's, it's all gradations from minor irritation or just a sense of this isn't quite what I hoped for, this is not going to bring long-term satisfaction all the way to whatever sort of the other end of the spectrum is. And so the Buddha said, this is, this is important to know. So, okay, the first step is that mindfulness of, okay, I, I am suffering. Or I am experiencing dukkha. And then what does it mean to know it? And I'm always interested in a really practical level. But what do you do? What do you do to know it? So... There are a few things that help us in the, in the moment. We can, you know, take, take uh, an extra deep breath, and that makes an extra long exhalation. And if you look at the, the nervous system, that kicks in the parasympathetic nervous system, so we've already started to produce the kinds of hormones that help us to calm down. 
so that, you know, our mothers might have told us when we get angry, take 10 deep breaths or take count to 10, right? Well, that, that has a good effect. It's not the effect that's going to help us learn where that comes from necessarily. And I think the Buddha really wanted us, encouraging us to know, well, obviously, the second noble truth says we find, you know, the cause of the suffering. So how do you do that? Well, there are various techniques, and one of them that I've been finding really valuable and I've been using quite a lot lately with people is the feeding your demons process. Uh, there's a book by that name by Lama Sultra Malioni. I don't know if you've seen it. But she's taken the, the ancient practice of chu from the Tibetan tradition, and she's westernized it and made it, um, you know, very accessible to us in the West and very powerful, I think. I find that this one is probably, in my experience, the most directly applicable to working through the first three noble truths of anything I've found. Because the noble truths aren't a theory. It's, it's, it's intended to be a practice. It's intended to be transformational. And it's possible for it to be transformational in a pretty short amount of time if we have the right tools. So with this practice of feeding your demons, the process goes something like this. You sit down on a chair or a cushion, and I have a chair or a cushion in front of you. Now you're going to recognize this in some um, Western psychoanalytical processes or techniques too. So that empty chair is over there. And that's where the demon is going to sit. And you're sitting over here. And then, of course, you, you're going to work with something in particular that's coming up. If you don't have anything that ever comes up, you're fine. You don't have to do this. <laughs> when I started to do this kind of work, I made a, a commitment that I was in. It wasn't exactly this process. It was an earlier one that I had discovered I was going to sit down and work with everything that triggered me uh, for three months. I made that vow. I'm going to do this every time something triggers me. And I told my daughter that, and she said, what else are you going to have time for? <laughs> Very perceptive young woman. <laughs> and, and I did find that, that, by the way, is a really powerful way to make inroads into that complex that's in our psyche. That way of committing to, I'm going to look at everything that comes up. This is my commitment. And of course, you can't always do it on the spot. Sometimes you have to set it on the shelf, but with that promise that you're going to do it. So I did occasionally have this kind of runway packed up <laughs> and then get home from work and, and unpack. Pretty soon, you start to see patterns. Oh, you again. <laughs> but in order to do that, it's important to follow a process that's going to help you really get to the root, or at least make some progress down to the root of what's triggering that or what that pattern is. 
So in this particular way of doing it, one identifies what uh, sort of demon, we'll call it demon, which is whatever is coming up, whatever that fear, anxiety, crummy feeling, and you locate it in your body. So you may know other processes like this, focusing from way back decades ago, um, starts out this way too, and is, is similar in many ways, but it's not quite as detailed, in my experience anyway. And you, you recognize where that feeling experience is, wherever it is in the body, and then you start to ask questions about it. As soon as you do that, you've taken a step back. So no matter how intense this feeling experience is, first of all, it's good to remember that one of the things the Buddha attributed to himself in terms of accomplishment, let's say, is that he knew that a feeling is just a feeling, and a thought is just a thought. If we could remember that, we'd save ourselves a lot of trouble. So there's this feeling in the body, and there's usually, and there's a thought or a pattern of thinking that goes with it. And you, you start asking questions about it. You know, where is it? What is its size? What is its shape? What is its color? What is its texture? Whatever you ask to try to bring it more into focus, more into your awareness, it helps you step back from it. You're not caught in it now. You're actually applying mindfulness. And as you answer those questions, what this process encourages us to do is to really invite it to become a being. What does it look like? What would it look like if it were a being with arms and legs and eyes, a face? What's its size? What's its gender? What's its color? What's its texture? What's the look in its eyes? And then, it, and then asking it three questions. What do you want from me? Which oftentimes can be pretty threatening. I want you to suffer. I want your life. I want you to be miserable. I want you to be afraid. Could be all kinds of things. What do you need from me? Okay, that's a good distinction. That we might apply to other things, actually. Sometimes that, there's a shift there. Although you, when you're asking the questions, you're not answering them. You wait until you finish answering these, asking these three questions, and then you shift over to the other seat. But for the moment, the, just to explain, the needing part often is a shift where there's something more tender, something more um, heartfelt. I need your attention. I need you to notice me. I need you to take care of me. And then, how will you feel when you get what you need? That one's really key. They're all really key, but that tells us something important. So at that point, you ask the questions and you shift over to the other seat. And by the way, those, for some people, this all sounds like way too airy-fairy. And then they try it and they go, man, I never thought this could happen to me. So I've seen some amazing things happen in a 30-minute time span. And 
they shift over there and we're asked to really take on the persona of this demon, however we have imagined it, and see what it feels like from the other side, if that look in its eyes had been really angry. You know, the, the bigger the demon, the more energy it's locking up in us. The bigger the fear, the more energy it's locking up in us. And the more energy that's released once we see through it. So when we sit in the demon's seat and we become it, we answer those three questions. And sometimes the answers are really surprising because we don't do it out of our thinking mind. We do it out of a deeper arising. And then we come back to our own place and let ourselves become us again and feel how that feels and see the demon over there. That last question, when it gets answered, how will you feel when you get what you need? It's often something like, I'll feel safe. I'll feel loved. I'll feel at peace. And then what we're asked to do is develop whatever that is into a nectar of peace, of love, whatever that demon would feel, and we feed it that. We feed it that. We're, the, the traditional practice is to let the body dissolve. So if you have that experience in your meditation of your body dissolving, you know what that means. If you let your body dissolve into this nectar, it flows to the demon, and it is endless. It is unlimited and you give without reservation to this scary thing and as we do that it changes it takes in this nectar that might be some like golden shimmering or pink lemonade or whatever it is and they might suck it up or roll in it or whatever they do and as they become filled with love, filled with peace, filled with calm, filled with safety, filled with whatever it is, that image changes. It transforms. My favorite one was when this very scary reptilian, blue spiky-haired crazy thing started to transform into this pink plush polar bear. Now, no matter how weird, crazy, uh, trivial-seeming, you know, cartoon character-ish, whatever it is, you just go with it. Whatever the subconscious generates in all this, you just, okay, we go with it. Once this creature over there is completely fed, if it still exists, sometimes it just disappears. Okay. Then we can ask, are you my ally? Because another interesting thing about our fears is when we work with them and they become transformed, like I said, energy is released and that becomes an ally to us. And 
at this point in the process, you're feeling very different than when you started. So if this being is an ally, the pink plush polar bear over there, <laughs> you ask it three questions, or maybe four. What will you promise me? How will you help me? How can I access you? And then you shift and you become whatever it is. One time it was this gigantic black stone guanyin. And there was a feeling of power and beauty and solidity and grace. So when you shift over there and you take on the qualities of this ally, again, you're in a different, whole different place than when you sat down and answer the questions from taking on that, that way of being. The pink polar bear said that it would promise to be there for me and it would help me by reminding me of my goodness. I never would have dreamed that one up. I mean, obviously, somewhere in there that came through. And I could access it by touching my heart. Now, this was particularly important because the issue that I was working with was a long-standing challenge with someone very close to me that I felt repeatedly hurt by, interaction that followed a pattern that was very familiar and extremely painful. And so that's what I was working with. It was old. It was deep. And it was a lot of suffering. And when I came through this process, there's a little bit more to tell you, but I'll come back to that. That changed. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. The process where I left it is you shift, you become that ally, you answer those questions, and then you come back to your place. And then you're in the last step stage of the process. And at that point, you go into meditation, you let yourself dissolve, you let the ally dissolve into you. I guess that's first. You let the ally dissolve into you, and then you dissolve into emptiness and rest. If we touch back into the, the neuroscience, there's a lot of positive hormonal nervous system stuff going on there. And what they're finding out more and more is that's that kind of process, these kinds of experiences change our brain. By repeating such kinds of activities, we actually change our brain. We change the way we react. In this particular situation, it was quite immediate. The very next time I was in the situation with a person, I felt it happen. I felt this 
reaction, this horrible feeling, and I touched my heart. Immediately there was this recollection of my own goodness because that's really what I had lost touch with. I was believing what was coming at me. And I, that happened and I didn't respond in the same way as I always would before. Now I have to tell you that didn't go over very well. And you've probably experienced that. If you change your end of the dynamic, <laughs> it wreaks a lot of havoc. <laughs> and that wasn't easy to absorb. But it was possible for me to do that without going into the same stuff as before. That person was more upset than normal. And I was able to just be there with that. That's okay. You know, it gets worse sometimes before it gets better. We all know. It wasn't hard to stay stable, though, unlike in the past when it would knock me off balance. And I'm not trying to blame this other person. You know, it's, these are dynamics. My end of it comes out of some really old stuff, karma. Right? So I thought that was really interesting. That's an important mindset to hold. Whatever's happening, that's really interesting. <laughs> Painful is all get out, but interesting. <laughs> so OK. We logged that. Hmm, I like that better, a lot better than what was happening before. The next time it happened, it did happen again. The next time it happened, the reaction on the other end was almost nothing. We were learning. We were learning to be different. After a decade of this pattern going on, it took two times. It hasn't happened since. It really is possible to change the wiring. And the neuroscience supports that. And the Buddha, he knew. So what happens in this process that they actually don't talk about in the book, is that it's, it's the first three noble truths, just right there in that 30 minutes. When we start asking about that demon, we're getting to the root. We're getting to where that attachment is. We're getting to what's happening in the second noble truth. When we're in the ally phase, we're experiencing the cessation, the third noble truth. We're experiencing it. You're, in, you're different. You're different. When we do this over and over again, the patterns change. The sankara. What's sankara? It's habituation. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to live anxious. 
we don't have to keep having the same conversation at whatever decibel level we have it. <laughs> we don't have to keep rewounding. And that's just one technique. But it does, I love the way it, it demonstrates the process of the noble truths. And then we don't want to forget the fourth one, the eightfold, the noble eightfold path. Because practicing that consciously with commitment helps us to build a foundation upon which we can do that process with the first three more and more effectively. And this brings me to a sutta that I really think is appropriate to this topic called Fear and Dread. I don't know if you know it from the Middle Length Discourses, the Majjhimanakaya number four. In case you want to go look it up and read it, it's wonderful. The Buddha talks about how it was before he became enlightened, an unenlightened bodhisattva. And uh, someone came to him and said, it's really hard, isn't it, to be meditating in the jungle by yourself? I mean, I would think if you don't have concentration, it would rob you of your mind. And the Buddha says, yeah, it is hard. And then he starts talking about, you know, being in the jungle and feeling fear. And he talked about, you know, that kind of fear. We've all probably done this where there's nothing really wrong, but you start to imagine something. So he says, you know, an animal comes up to you or a peacock knocks a branch off the tree. I thought, yeah, boy, I've been in that situation where I've scared myself to death. Well, not quite, I'm still here, but you know what I mean? <laughs> and he talks about what he did in his thought processes to deal with the fear. He reminded himself of his goodness. He reminded himself, well, you know, it's hard if you're here without an ability to concentrate, but I have an ability to concentrate. It's hard if you're here if you haven't purified your bodily conduct, your mental conduct, your verbal conduct, but I have. You're hard if you're here without loving kindness, if you're covetous, covetous and greedy and angry and all that stuff, but, but I'm not in those states, and I, I can do this. So this is, this is something that is possible with our own life experience when we are struggling, especially if we're emphasizing and re-emphasizing and re-emphasizing something negative about ourselves or about our experience. Again, neuroscience comes in and says, this is really common. This is part of our evolution that we would focus on what's negative and keep playing it. I always said that was a personal failing of my own but I guess we're all doing it, <laughs> or at least it's natural to do it. We, we put a lot more attention on the painful stuff, on the places where we feel like we've messed up, than we do on the positive things. We go over and over the negative things a lot of times, and we, you know, the, the positive things, the, the happy things, they just, okay, noted, it's gone. And this apparently is part of what kept us alive and going all these um, 
however long we've, human beings have existed. Because life-threatening things are more dangerous. They, if we remember those, we're likely to survive. If you remember the positive, loving, warm things, on a physical kind of evolutionary level, it's not as important. But as we want to live happy, peaceful, evolve mentally, spiritually, it's very important. So the Buddha was doing what we're told is healthy to do now, re-emphasize the beauty, emphasize what went right. Be grateful for what went right today. There's a really good talk by a psychiatrist from Malaysia. I can't tell you his name, I don't remember, but he talked about using contentment as an antidote to anxiety and depression. And he said, be grateful for what didn't go wrong today. Oh, be grateful for what went right today. Write it down. Be grateful for what didn't go wrong today. And then be grateful for what went wrong, because you can learn, about, learn from that. Right? So this is all part of changing, changing the way we think, changing what we emphasize. So the Buddha was doing that. And then he said that he asked himself, so why am I expecting this fear and dread? And he said when it would come upon him, he would just, if he was sitting in meditation, he would, keep, he would stay sitting in meditation until it, went, until it went away. If he was walking, he would continue walking in meditation until it went away. If he was standing, if he was lying down, he would just stay in whatever posture he was in until it went away. Now what's that teaching us? This isn't going to last. It's just a feeling. It's arising, it's going to cease. We can ride it out. The more we develop the capacity to stay present with, but not in, and see it just as a feeling, the more we become the masters of it. We can be the masters of these emotional states. They don't have to run us. We don't have to follow that reaction chain. So I'm going to tell you one last story. Um, how many of you know who Ajahn Chah was? Okay, a few of you. He was a Thai forest meditation master who was an incredible teacher who started more than 200 monasteries, and he taught Westerners, even though he didn't speak um, Western language, English, or he taught in Thai. But he somehow had the ability to reach Westerners and teach them. And I heard uh, some of you may know who Ajahn Pasano is. He was one of his students back in the day and lived with him. And he said, Ajahn Chah had a fear of ghosts. This is very common in Thai culture. You know, we might think this is a little silly, but boy, it's a very serious. Um, if you're Thai and you're raised in that 
culture where you recognize that there's a lot more going on than what we see, and there's a lot of conditioning for fear of ghosts. So Ajahn Chah went out to meditate in one of the really scary places, in the charnel ground, which is what the Buddha recommended. Go to the really scary places. The Buddha talks about that in Majjhima Nikaya number four, too. Being in the scary places at the scary times of the month. And so Ajahn Chah was going to lick this fear. And so he was sitting in meditation, and the fear was really intense, really intense. And he was meditating, and he was contemplating. He was contemplating through the night, what, so what would be the worst? The ghosts can come and destroy my body and scatter it everywhere, and so what? They could come and, you know, they can't really do anything to me. Now, obviously, this is a deep, experiential experience, experiential experience. You know what I mean. <laughs> so he meditated through the night, and he came to a point of complete surrender, complete peace. He had gotten through this. Meditated all night, and when the sun came up, and he came out of meditation, and he was just, wow, uh, maybe euphoric could be the word. Just, you know, that experience of having overcome. And Ajahn Pasano said he, he went outside to relieve himself and peed blood. And he thought, well, if it's broke, it's broke. <laughs> so the Arahants, the, the fully enlightened, they're, they're not afraid. And that's available to all of us. And it comes from facing what we're afraid of understanding it, and looking after it, looking after ourselves and following what the Buddha recommended. And it works. It's the reflection for tonight. There are three, there's three minutes <laughs> for questions. It's called Feeding Your Demons. It's by Sol Soltrum, which is T-S-U-L-T-R-I-M, something like that. Soltrum Alioni. And also, I, I brought the Buddha's brain. I'm not finished with it yet, but I'm having a great time with it. Rick Hansen and Richard Mendius. So there are lots of you know books out right now about Buddhism and neuroscience, and I think it's, it's valuable to take a dip into that. 
And I'm going to be staying around, and you're welcome to ask me anything you want. I don't know if I have any answers, but we'll do the best we can. I really, I really am committed in my own life and encouraging everyone to don't let the Dhamma be theory only. Make it practice. Every sutta you read, ask yourself, what's the practice that's implied here? What am I going to do differently today, tomorrow? What can I do? If we find something and we work with it consistently in a committed way, we get results. And, and that's, that's a great way to read the suttas. You know, what is the practice that comes out of this? And can I apply this practice for the next two weeks with commitment? And then see what happens. I wondered for a long time, what is it that makes people change? And I'm convinced that it's practice. Good luck. <laughs>